Good morning, church. The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After reading something like that, what can you do? You just need to fall down and worship. But why don't you join me now in prayer? <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glorious, living God, we worship you, we praise you. We pray now that as we seek to understand this passage, as we take it deeply into us, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would teach us, would guide us, would implant that word deep within us and move us to lives of worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. For about seven years, Betty and myself lived in the Vancouver, in the west coast of Canada. Now, I love Toronto. It's my home, beautiful city, but Vancouver, I think, is probably one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It is spectacular. Crested with North Shore mountains, nestled right up against the Pacific Ocean on a sunny day, there is no more beautiful place uh, than Vancouver. Part of my heart still lies buried on, uh, along the beaches of English Bay there. Of course, if you lived in Vancouver, you also know about something else about Vancouver, the rain. 
It rains, and it rains a lot, and it rains long. You can be socked in for weeks, for months, with cloud and fog and rain that just never lets up. And you never see the mountains during that time. The gray, the gloom that can happen, oh, it can, it can almost feel oppressive at times. And you can forget about all the beauty of what is around you all the time, and yet you just don't see it. And living in Vancouver, you're always conscious of that reality, that you live in the shadow of something spectacular and glorious, but you can't always see it. But then every once in a while, a high-pressure system blows through, and the sun shines, and the mountain breaks out, and that sight is utterly glorious. And all of a sudden you're reminded that you live in the middle of something so much bigger than yourself, so much larger, so much more glorious and beautiful than yourself. And you need that sort of vision to live through a gloomy, rainy Vancouver winter. We as humans need a similar sort of vision to keep us alive and well. Because it's so easy to have our vision of life cramped and crowded and clouded over, socked in by all the bad news that happens around us, socked in by what feels like sometimes the meaninglessness in life. Some days, all that's wrong in the world, all that's wrong in us, in me, feels so strong, feels so real, more real than anything else, that we lose sight of what is actually true and real. So thank God we have revelation. Remember, the word revelation is a translation of the word apocalypse. This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And apocalypse, if you recall, is not this gloom and doom future. It is an unveiling. It is like pulling back the curtain on something so that you can see what was always there but was hidden before. It's sort of like the wind blowing away the fog bank to reveal the glorious mountains that were always there, but you just didn't see them. And the glorious mountain that Revelation is revealing to us is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus standing victorious at the center of all reality, seen and unseen. Revelation 4 and 5 are really the central vision of the whole book, it is, it is the theological foundation and pivot for the book. These chapters give us <clears throat> a defining vision that not only makes sense of the rest of the book of Revelation, but really makes, helps us make sense of the rest of our lives. It changes the way we understand ourselves. It helps us see the world in a whole new way. It gives us purpose and meaning. It's a vision that, that helps me keep my balance in a world that can sometimes feel often bleak. So Revelation 4 and 5 reveal how we are participants in something so much bigger, so much more glorious. That's the purpose of Revelation, to help you and I see reality, to see it clearly. The critical uh, conviction in Revelation is things are not as they seem. There is far more going on in life than what we can see with our eyes, than what we can deduce with our intellect, than what we can know with our brains. What we see out in the world, that's not everything. And Revelation seeks to give us a vision of that bigger reality that is going on all around. So John begins Revelation 4 by saying, There before me was a door standing open in heaven. 
Now, don't think of that door in heaven as something far off and far away and out of reach. John's not speaking of heaven in terms of that future reality that the people of God will enjoy. He is talking about, he's revealing a very present dimension of reality that exists right here, right now, right where you are, all around us. John is describing present reality, this door that is open to heaven. It's what's going on now. Heaven is a part of the universe you and I inhabit. It is a dimension of the bigger reality of life that is all around us. Now think of that. Wherever you are right now, there's an open door. There's an open door to that heavenly dimension of reality. It is not far off. The veil between heaven and earth is wafer thin. There is a door and it is open and it is open because of the person of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished and you can enter through it. Question is, will you? John hears a voice calling him to enter through that door and what does he see there? John sees a throne. Throne is a symbol of power, symbol of authority. It is what we're seeing here is that the steady control center of the universe Someone is on the throne. Human history, it chronicles all the, the, the rise and fall of so many would-be throne occupiers. People who would take to the throne. You'd see the different dynasties of China, the kingdoms of Egypt, Persia, the Ottoman empires, Incan, Aztec, and Roman, British, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch empires, German reichs. Russian despots, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh, South African apartheid, all of these regimes and kingdoms, they have come and they've gone. But what has stayed central is the throne at the center of the universe. And so John says, do not be afraid. Look, there's a throne and that throne, it's not empty. Someone has occupied that throne. Someone is sitting on that throne, which is good news. Because we might not always understand what's going on. And there's a lot these days during this pandemic that we don't understand. And we don't always know why events are unfolding as they do. But Revelation reminds us, God reigns over all. There is one sitting on the throne. And you can trust him. And the one sitting on the throne is stunning. John is grabbing for words to describe the splendor, the dazzling light and life and color and beauty. And there's just two details about this that I want to look at. There's so much in this passage um, that we can't cover off. There are some sermon notes in the links below uh, that you can explore a little bit later on. But two details to point out. First, a rainbow that's shining all the way around the throne. And then before the throne, there is a sea of glass. The rainbow. Of course, if you remember the story of Noah, the ark, the flood, the rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy. It's a sign of hope that God, in his just mercy, the creator, pledges, promises to bring his creation to fulfillment. It's interesting, um, lately I've been noticing around the city of Toronto in windows and on doorsteps, pictures of rainbow or people wrapping posts in the colors of the rainbow. Biblical reminder saying, look at the throne. Remember God's mercy, the promise of the creator of all things to protect, to preserve this world. It's a sign of hope. 
And then there is the sea of glass. John says, I saw a sea like glass. The sea and the waters uh, were frequently an image for utter chaos, for danger. The forces of evil and chaos were identified with the waters. Think of, for instance, the creation story where at the very first chapter of the Bible, the spirit hovered over the waters. The spirit was hovering over chaos and out of that God drew and created order. Or later in Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, we're going to hear the story about this beast that emerges from the sea. People feared the sea because it was a symbol of utter chaos. But here, the sea is utterly still. John's saying chaos does not win, which is good news for people living in a pandemic, isn't it? Right now, we're living through a series of events that just feels out of our control. But John is pulling back the curtain and he reveals the bigger reality. And he says, God is in control. Even chaos is under his reign and rule. As one pastor, Daryl Johnson, writes, what we're being told is that even chaos has a purpose in God's sovereign rule. And so what feels like chaos to us is contained within and is a servant to God's purposes. And so John tells all of us living through this pandemic Look, look at the throne, see the glass sea. Chaos does not win. God is in control. And then all around the throne are are 24 other thrones with 24 elders. The 24 elders are the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, the fullness of all God's people gathered around the throne in worship. And then around them are these four living creatures. Really, when you read the description, it's a pretty bizarre description. Really strange, weird creatures covered with eyes and with six wings. And they represent the whole of creation. And so what you have together is all God's people and all creation, the natural, the supernatural, prophets, priests, apostles, animals, wild animals, soaring birds, all centered pressing in on the throne, gathered in worship around God. It's interesting the order of how this happened. The creatures worship first. All creation worships God. Creation doesn't have the same problem we do about worship. Creation knows its creator. So often humans, we don't know or honor or acknowledge our creator, and so we worship other things. Creation doesn't do that. Jesus once said, you don't cry out, the very rocks will cry out themselves because creation understands its creator. And so moved first by the worship of the four creatures, all of creation, the elders then join in praising God day and night, never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so what you see is all of reality, again, seen and unseen, pressing towards the throne because in God, in the throne, there's life, there's healing. That's where our identity, where our purpose is found. That worship, which is taking place around us all the time, whenever we worship, we're stepping into that reality. That worship is what we're made for, created for. It's what we're meant to do. One of the most important things we can do is to worship, is to center our lives on God, on the throne. But our lives so easily get pulled away, don't they, in all sorts of different directions if we have no center to our lives. 
we easily get distracted. We easily get dispersed all over the place. Because here's the reality. We are created to worship something, to center our lives on something. All human beings worship something. We identify and we center our, our lives, our identities, our purpose on something. One author, David Foster Wallace, says this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping, he writes. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Worship anything else other than your creator. And then we live at the mercy of anxiety and confusion. We get distracted. There's no steady direction. There's no sustaining purpose. There's no sort of center of gravity to our lives. So really, one of life's most central questions is, who is worthy of our worship? Who can we fully give our lives to? Who is sufficient to bear that weight? Well, in John's vision, in chapter 5, he, he sees the, the throne and the one on the throne who holds a scroll in his hand. And the scroll is the meaning of history, the plans and purposes of God. It's sealed with seven seals, but there's no one worthy to open it. And John weeps bitterly. He cries these hot, hard tears that so many in our world have have cried because we've been despondent, because our lives have worshipped false things. We've ended up confused and undone. Ends up just in bitter tears. We've all shared in those tears of John that, that sense of regret and loss, the desolation of, of having given ourselves to something or knowing, is there any purpose in this life? But it's an interesting thing here. So here's John, who's in the magnificent splendor of God, the presence of God, and yet he weeps, which tells us something about our worship. It's, it's that worship and sorrow are not exclusive of one another. And I think it's an invitation for all of us to, to bring our deepest sadness, to bring all your grief, all that confuses you, all that doesn't make sense in life, bring it to worship. Because the promise is that in worship, at the center, at the throne, all those loose threads, those frayed edges begin to find a wholeness. Our lives, fractured and frayed as they are, they find this larger meaning. We find ourselves woven into a deeper, greater reality that John is showing us. Of course, then one of the 24 elders says, do not weep. Because see, the line of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Do not weep. And John looks. But what he sees is just jolting. He expects, like we all would, to see, you know, a lion, a a roaring lion, teeth bared, a vision of ferocious power. But John turns and then I saw, what, a lion? No, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. A lamb, a a vulnerable little baby lamb, throat slit, bloodied. How can that be the victorious one, right? Not, Not quite the vision we were expecting. But John says this lamb is the conquering one. 
He describes the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes. Remember, seven is this number of perfection. Horns were, were a, a sign of strength. Eyes, a sign of insight or wisdom. So here is the slaughtered lamb in all its apparent weakness, actually completely, perfectly strong. And here is this slaughtered lamb looking like such a foolish vision, and yet completely wise, the wisdom of the world. John's saying the lion does not overcome as a lion, but only as a lamb. The conquering lamb is the one who is victorious through dying. His sacrifice, his vulnerability comes His victory comes through vulnerability. And that now is a defining stamp on how we understand God. God is not this power-mongering deity who's pounding his fist and coercing others to get his way. No, no, no. God exercises power in wisdom through his vulnerability and suffering. Listen to the hymn of praise that follows this. All heavens and earth breaks out into praise, and there's a reason for it. Why? Because you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and nation. It's the sacrifice of Christ, his cross, his giving his life for yours, for mine, that makes him worthy of all of our worship. Again, John is pulling back the curtain here, giving us this vision of this deeper, bigger reality that is at work in our world. And here's the central reality, that all of the wisdom, all of the power of God is found in his capacity to suffer with us in love, in vulnerability. Power and might are not what is victorious in this world. The lamb goes to the cross for us, taking the penalty we justly deserve. There he is, the slaughtered lamb, the symbol of utter victory and overcoming. This is the power and wisdom of God at the center of the universe, the God who gives life for us. God rules not through this ferocious exercise of power and authority, but by taking into himself the hurts of others, taking himself our suffering, by exposing himself to loss, by becoming vulnerable. I don't know about you, this is just profoundly challenging. We're constantly fooled into thinking, into believing that power is the way to change things. You know, become big, get strong, cling to power, sidle up to those who have power. Not so. John reminds us, actually history moves forward. The movers and shakers of history are those who live like Jesus, who give themselves away in sacrificial love. I'm embarrassed to think how often I get this wrong, um, how I fail to take this into my life. I think of myself as a dad and how I'm so quick to take whatever perceived authority I have as a father instead of coming alongside my kids and, and listening and loving, and, and be willing to lay aside all my agendas for the day, for that moment, to serve their interests. And that gets multiplied all over my life as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor. And I need this vision. I mean, I have to constantly look at the throne. I need to behold the Lamb who was slain, who was overcome. That's the vision I need to see again and again, because this is the deepest reality. 
This is our God who who participates so deeply in all of our losses and sufferings and who brings life out of it. Jesus, who, who is all authority, who gave it all up and became all vulnerability. He's the one who has overcome. He is victorious. And what can you do but fall to your knees in worship? And just to cry out with all of creation, you are worthy, God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and might. Worthy is the Lamb because this is who God is. And this is who we are. This is our story. This is our calling to follow the Lamb and to enter the brokenness in the world and be part of God's redemption of all things. So let's join the 24 elders, and all creation and worship the one who is only worthy of your worship. Because it is there at the center of reality that we find hope and purpose, that we find our identity and the meaning of our lives. And so right now what I want you to do is simply cry out, worthy, 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 Worship God right now. Take a moment of quiet and worship the one who is worth your worship.